The lives of many of Australians have changed forever after the devastation of the bushfires we've seen over the past few months. Please use the link in our episode's bio to make a donation to those in need. We are podcasting during the Sydney Test Match and we have some wonderful guests. Today, this man was a policeman in Christchurch. He's a coach who bowled very, very fast. His name is Shane Bond. We're going to have a chat with Shane. Also... What about Jim Maxwell? A great voice. He's been broadcasting for Australian sports fans for the better part of 50 years. We chat with Jim about his love of the SCG and all things sport. It was South Africa that day where Shane Bond bowled a 156k ball, one of the fastest bowlers of all time. Joined us on the SCG podcast. How are you, Shane? I'm great, thanks, Tim. 2019 or 2020 now, does it seem a long time ago when you bowled that ball? It does. I think it was 2003, so it's a hell of a long time ago. You know. I remember Neil Wagner sitting on the on the bank in South Africa, and once I started working with him, telling me that he remember seeing me bowl rockets at that ground. So that is a long time ago, but I'm lucky to be still involved in loving my time in cricket. Yeah, the World Cup back in uh, the early 2000s. What about when you look back and reflect on your career and look at the back injuries, look at the stress fractures, and there could have been so many more test matches. Yeah, but there are there are eighteen, and I never thought I'd play one. So I look back, and the, even though there's always the, geez, I'd love to have got a hundred Test wickets, and would love to have done this and done that. I, I'm grateful, you know. Um, you know, as a policeman who ended up turning into a cricketer who played for nine years and played IPL and all over the world county cricket, and so I'm lucky. And you know, now I'm working with players who are going through some of the same stuff that I I went through, um, and it's just nice to be able to put back and help out other players. It's great. That resilience element is so important, isn't it, in sport? You got to know it because you had to come back a number of times where medical practitioners said, I don't think you should keep playing, you know? Yeah, I think that that was the one good thing for me, uh, getting some perspective that ended up having a job, realised how much I loved the game, and when I got the opportunity to play again, I, I wanted to do everything I possibly could to be as good as I could. And so when I decided to retire, it was just that I just had enough, had enough of the training and the hard work. Um, but loved the nine years in between. Um, and now it's the same. You're, you're working with players who are having challenging times and you can sort of mentor them through them a bit. Um, and, and that's the hardest thing probably from a professional point of view because I started as an amateur, is the perspective thing. Some, some players have only ever known cricket and, and sometimes that can make things tougher. I'm going to ask you about your coaching in just a moment, but I would like to talk about being a policeman. What was it like being a copper in Christchurch? Well, Christchurch is a pretty sleepy town, but it was a lot of fun. There's ads at home that talk about better work stories, and it was it was certainly that. Some of the stuff that you would get up to, and I remember raiding gang pads back at home and chasing people down the middle of the street on a Saturday night, um, car chases, all that sort of stuff was so much fun. And I, and I think for me it was it was a real confidence builder because it the, the job puts you in incredibly uncomfortable situations and you have to deal with it, and that's what elite sport's about. So by the time I made my debut, I was used to feeling a little bit uncomfortable, certainly used to copping abuse, so the crowds weren't an issue, um, and I had a, had built a, a much more stronger inner confidence. Were you a Tackleberry-style policeman from Police Academy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I certainly didn't want to get into fights. I was always worried someone would beat me up. I didn't have a lot of skill, so I just tried to talk my way out of stuff, pretty much. It's so true, though, isn't it, to work a job, uh, face life, see the real side of life, and then see cricket or see a life as a cricketer because 
it's so valuable for you as an individual. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, in, in our sport in particular, and others, mental health, um, there are a lot of mental health issues, and a lot of that, I think, stems from the unknown after cricket. Your identity is all built in around, you know, me as a cricketer, and that's that's what I'm known as, and that's what I am. Whereas for me, it was, I'm just playing cricket. I've got a life outside of cricket. I've got friends outside of cricket, and I had a sort of a bit of a plan of where I wanted to go afterwards. So when you've only ever known the sport, it can make it a lot more challenging. Um, and also, it teaches, it teaches you the value of a dollar. You know, when you're earning $25 an hour or $30 an hour, which I was as a policeman, when you all of a sudden that income goes up, you, you certainly appreciate it a, a great deal. You've seen the tough times of life. You've seen Christchurch, your hometown, the place you love, torn apart by a natural disaster. That was crazy. I mean, I, there were two big earthquakes in Christchurch. I missed both, thankfully thankfully for me, but my family were there. I um, mean, to come back to my city and basically in ruin and have to live through a few years of aftershocks, uh, incredibly stressful. So I can certainly relate to what's going on here in Australia with bushfires. But you know, again, it just builds resilience. You, you sort of have that attitude. You just got to keep going, box on and... Um, you know, when stuff gets done and that's what's happened all of a sudden nine years have disappeared at home and the city's nearly rebuilt and there's an energy to it so yeah, that's good that's the thing though you know, nine years nearly a decade and, the, and you're still saying that the city's nearly rebuilt because stories just go off the radar don't they uh, they become a broadway story and then as soon as something else comes along it just drops off yeah and, I, and when i say nearly rebuilt it's probably 50 percent uh, but it feels like this we're finally making a whole heap of progress i think you know you watch news stories from events that happen all overseas and you you're reasonably blasé about it but when it certainly happens in your own backyard um it gives you perspective and so coming over to australia with everything that's going on here you can certainly understand uh what people are going through you packed a lot in uh, tell us about your tertiary studies that you're a popo you study yeah I, d- I, d- I did bits and bobs of uh study before I went into the police I thought about doing PE because I just like doing sport and then teaching and realized I didn't want to be a teacher and then did an MBA once I finished uh, my cricket career because I thought look I don't know if I want to coach forever a my body might go to pieces and I thought I might want an alternative career in administration or have another pathway so sort of had it mapped out Um, it was hard yards it was I think that was the hardest thing coming out of cricket was um confidence in cricket then you're coming in back into the real world and not knowing whether the skills were transferable but yeah you learn that they are and it was it's always nice to have a piece of paper that shows you can sort of stick to something a little bit of drama the delhi giants 18 month hiatus of course back then it was a rebel league now it's, you went and played for the cold cutter side and, and have coached over there but back then yeah, I was a badass, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, that the, the best part about it was when I played international cricket, uh, there was not a lot of camaraderie between the international teams. There was almost a standoffishness, and you would say hi to blokes from different teams and you'd get donuts back. And so for me, going into that league for the first time, I remember Damian Martin, Jason Gillespie, Lance Clues, and all these players who I'd played against were all of a sudden banned. So we, we had a, this common thing, uh, and we would spend every night together having a beer, talking about the game and building friendships that have lasted um, up until this day. So I think that league and then um, coming into the IPL, that's the that's the great thing I love about the, the T20 leagues now is you have friends and people who you coach all over the world and you're in contact with them yearly and helping out if you can. And, and now there's, although the game still play just as tough on the field, um, there's a lot of respect and friendships across the teams, which I think is brilliant. It is ironic in reflection, isn't it, that uh, you're banned from playing and now that 
Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's it's fantastic for the players and the coaches because we're so well paid. And there's opportunities even for fringe players to go and play in Canada and um, the UAE. There's all range of different leagues and different experiences. So another one I'm going to next year is the 100, which will be interesting, a whole different format. So for me, in terms of coaching, it's all that sort of stuff's come along at the right time and it's nice to be involved in it. You've got a good bunch of guys there at the Thunder. Have you really enjoyed that here? Uh, guys like Usman and Callum Ferguson on that real experience level, some mid-range players and some young guys too. Yeah, uh, it's nice to be in charge. I spent nine years as a coach or assistant coach, so it's nice to put your own mark on stuff. Also nice to, they're, they're guys who I've played against, you know, especially Callum. What, Shane Watson last year played a lot of cricket against Watto. Um, and then it's nice to come in and, again, help and hope and develop the next generation of players. So key thing is just picking, obviously, good talent, good people trying to mould them towards a common purpose. And we're, we're a fantastic club. There's a lot of great people behind the scenes. So we're hopeful that for the next few years we can do some good stuff. You have to keep it calm too, don't you, when you've got young guys around you and you're the leader. I saw your interview in Canberra that night when the smoke haze came in. And it was only a few more balls. Callum Ferguson, not a very demonstrative guy away from cricket. He's not. He's one of the nicest blokes in the world. But he was angry. And I could almost see you biting your <laughs> yeah there's a little bit of that I think you know I think there's always the emotion when you coach and you always talk about it as coaches do you try to control them and how much do you control them and it's hard because you're you're right in amongst it so I think you've still got to be natural without being a plonker on the bench um, but yeah there's again there's the perspective thing you know we, we lost a point there's a whole lot of people losing their houses we were obviously annoyed but I think if we'd gone on there and just keep whinging about losing a point, we would have looked poor. And you know, one of our um, our big things in our club is about being humble. So yeah. it's important that we live to the values that we talk about. Yeah, I love the word Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the New Zealand side? The Test series underwhelming. Uh, had some things go against them, obviously injury, but there have been moments uh, bowling trips in Melbourne. Yeah, definitely underwhelming. Um, they'll be disappointed, I think, in, in hindsight they would have done some different things. I think they would have probably given Ferguson a test match at home before he came over here so that he was ready. I think they would have played all the seamers in Perth. I think you can't come here uh, with a spinner who can't take wickets. And Mitch is a, a very good white ball bowler, but not quite suited to this format. So they, they either should have played Astor or played all the seamers. And they just haven't quite been good enough, mate. And and I think the other thing is Australia have been exceptional, particularly their bowling attack. So I think from a New Zealand perspective, you know, we had the we had the team, we had everything in our favour. We were match hardened, um, but we've been just basically walked over by an outstanding Australian team. And I think everyone will be ho- at home will be disappointed by that. One of the real positives was that young bloke, that little teenager that watched you back there in South Africa, Wagner. He's had a tactic and the team has, and they have kept Steve Smith under control where the couldn't. I think that that's the one thing, and you talk about coaching, you can't uh, coach sometimes, is just um, heart. And, and, and Wags is, what, 135 Ks at full steam. He's five foot ten and um, doesn't hoop the ball around corners, but, geez, he's got a big ticker, and he just runs in all day, and it just shows what you can do when you've got that um, ability just to keep coming in and keep inspiring your teammates as well. There's a massive part around him and BJ Watling who will do that, and that's lifted the team up to a level where they've been really competitive over the last few years. So, look, yeah, I mean, the boys are well-organised, well-prepared. They've, they've kept 
Steve Smith quiet, but there's a few other players they needed to as well and haven't been quite able to do it. Well, I remember catching the train in from the western suburbs of Sydney and walking up the Bow Street to this ground. It's amazing, isn't it, the Sydney Cricket Ground? It's in the SCG podcast. It is just a very special place in the, the world landscape. It's gorgeous. It's one of my favourite grounds. I remember I played my second ODI here in front of a full house against Australia. And I remember standing um, right near this groundsman's tunnel, actually, and copping grief from the crowd and bits of fruit coming past my head and a lot of sheep noises were coming my way, um, <laughs> which was hard case. But we won. We won by 20 runs or 15 runs, and the noise and the adrenaline coming out of there and just to look around the ground, a ground that I grew up watching on TV, watching World Series cricket and always imagining what it would be like to play and, and when you play, it was everything you hoped that it would be. And, and um, yeah, I loved every minute of it. And when you passed over to the, to the grandstands, and Lords obviously has it, um, there is the Bradman walk And I was watching, you know, you watch guys even with Big Bash, and you, at Big Bash game you turn up and you just sit there and you stand in the middle and you look around and you see the names of the people who are on the stands and the history and the honours boards. And it's just brilliant to play where some of the greats of the game have played and to get the opportunity to do that and sometimes you know these ground you bring your kids out because they're you know they're involved in the background and you see um, the players bring their kids onto the ground and hopefully inspire the next generation of players to to want to play here as well. Recently you were here as a coach and the result didn't go your way I was being yelled at by my wife send that 10 year old to bed (laughs) I said I can't send him to bed it's a super over yeah how do you reflect on that it was it was an amazing finish, not the finish for the Thunder. Yeah, we hate losing to the Sixers, to be fair. <laughs> Great game. I mean, that's what you hope for. I mean, we've had every game go down pretty much the last over, so it's it's not good for the heart. But um, for the fans, I mean, that's the beauty of the competition, isn't it? Yeah. And I love turning on the game every night, even when we're not involved in watching it, because it's... It's great to watch. There's, it's always close. There's great cricket played. And when you're at ground level, when win or lose, and you experience that energy from that, it's fantastic. Finally, I get the feeling from having a chat with you that you feel like you are and have and will uh, live a charmed life. Is that, is that a Yeah, I'm very lucky. I mean, there's only so many coaching jobs, that commentating jobs that go around. And, and to get one and to get the chance to do it all over the world, I'm bloody lucky. So just got to keep, like the players, working hard, evolving yourself, um, trying to be a good bloke. Um, and yeah, I'm lucky because I like helping people out and... I'm living the dream, so I'm, yeah, it's cool. You're far from a plonker. You went and studied and, and played for New Zealand now coaching the Thunder, amongst other teams. Congratulations on what you've achieved. All the best going forward. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Where would you start in the Very well. Lovely to be back at the spiritual home of Australian cricket, which is this place and has been for the whole of my life. Do you remember when you first came? Uh, my father would have brought me here when I was um, so young. I wouldn't have even bothered to watch the cricket. I wouldn't have known what was going on. I was scrambling around uh, looking for the blue bow bottles because you used to get threepence for them when you took them back to the little shop around the corner. And if you got four of those, you got a free bottle, didn't you? So um, I, I think I spent most of my time when he, who my father loved the cricket, uh, was out here watching Keith Miller and all sorts of people play, up till about 
1960, I'd say, and then I started to look at what was going on on the other side of the fence and to develop a, a, an interest in the, what was occurring. I think about about the time of the West Indies being here, 60-61, I started to understand uh, what was going on out in the middle of the ground a little bit more than I had before. And that was the Frank Worrell uh, series, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Uh, an extraordinary time for cricket, really. Well, it was the most refreshing thing that happened to the game because uh, you know they had this dodgy series against England a couple of years before and the game needed a bit of shaking up if people were going to take an interest in it. And uh, that series changed the game, you could say, forever with the influence of Benno and Worrell and the style of cricket that they played. And, of course, Sober's got a big hundred here and hit... Mecca into the Sheridan stand down at the end where the Churchill stand is today, and there were there were big crowds by the standards of those days here, but probably nothing like the crowds we get on a regular basis at Test cricket today. To be honest, other than Melbourne where there were ninety thousand people um, watching on the on the Saturday in the fifth Test, but I I think if you if you look back at that. Uh, the extraordinary thing about the series was there was the West Indies who ended up losing a very close series who, as the losing team, got a ticket tape parade through Melbourne before they left. Now, that is pretty rare. I've never heard of it happening to a losing team before. It was extraordinary. And to have the trophy named after the captain and we went on to see that series in 1995 where Australia finally wrestled the trophy back. It's hard to take this crown for granted, though, isn't it, when we walk out here? I've been coming here a long time. You've been coming here longer. Well, it's the only ground left in Australia where you can walk into the dressing room and sit where Trump, Grace, uh, where the great rugby league players of yesterday, Dave, Dave Brown. I mean, all the legendary rugby league, rugby union and Australian cricketers, overseas cricketers, sat in those dressing rooms that are still there today. No other Australian ground has that. No other Australian ground has those old Edwardian stands, the ladies and the um, members' pavilion. So the place is reeking with history, which I've been able to enjoy in many ways from um, being a spectator to being a ball boy in a big rugby game out in the middle uh, to playing some cricket sort of socially on the ground and of course um, my, my my second marriage took place here at the, the, the members stand so I've got a lot of connection with the ground apart from being a member since I was 12 years of age Absolutely, uh, look, I don't want to rush over the window. Yeah, yeah. I love the ball boy story who, who were you ball boy for and when was that? Uh, that was when South Africa was here in what was a very nasty series with a noise about apartheid all over the place. And they had barbed wire right around the hill. They had people blowing whistles. And they wanted experienced ball boys, not youngsters. So I was 21 in 1971. And New South Wales played South Africa the week before the test match here on this ground. And uh, I was as a referee of... Uh, of some notoriety at that stage of my life and they decided to have the boys rather than ball boys so the uh, the ball boys were both you know my age 20 21 or something and I remember the first half being over on that side of the ground 
There were paddy wagons sitting on the side of the field, policemen in their overalls, and if anyone sneaked through the barbed wire, they went horizontal into the paddy wagon. And they were throwing everything, I tell you. Billiard balls, oranges, lemons, golf balls. They were pelting stuff over throughout the first half, blowing whistles. There was this cacophony of whistle blowing, and it was amazing that the players were able to concentrate on the game and play and only hear Craig Ferguson, who was the referee, his whistle. They were sort of tuned to his whistle and they weren't put off by this. But it was a lousy environment to be playing sport in and it shouldn't have happened. It, it, it was really quite horrible. And you, it made you think, is it worth it, really, to play sport? It would have been pretty intimidating. It was. I, I look at that era, that early 70s, it was a controversial time for this ground when mm. Yes, well, and, and the incident down on the fence. I mean, it was a bit silly provocative for Millingworth to send Snow down to the boundary to field after he'd banged Terry Jenner on the head with a bouncer uh, and then a, a drunk put his hand over the, over the fence and there was the incident with cans and they were steel cans in those days being thrown at the players and leaving the ground and then the umpires... Uh, saying, uh, you know, if you don't come out and resume the game, Ray uh, Illingworth, uh, you'll have to forfeit. And, yeah, very unpleasant, very unpleasant. And not all that well handled, perhaps, on, on both sides, either by Illingworth or by Lou Rowan, who was a fairly <coughs> a truculent uh, detective-come-umpire. What was your first memories of broadcasting? Well, I, I did an audition in the back of the stand before I actually got the job as a trainee in 1973, it would have been, and Bob Massey and John Watkins were batting in the game where poor old Watto made his uh, inglorious debut and his first ball landed on the next pitch. He had such stage fright. Uh, but in fact, Watto could bat a bit, and he and Massey put on 88 for the eighth wicket, which was enough for Australia to think, mm, maybe they could win. And they led by 150 and bowled Pakistan out in the end for 106 to win the game. Lily coming off his, his sick bed and bowling uh, 18 overs off the reel, which was amazing. And uh, Max Walker took six for 15. So I was doing 20 minutes on the old Nagra uh, tape recorder at the back of the old Noble stand as an audition for the job I eventually got in the ABC. So, so with your well, yeah, somewhere else, yes. I was a long way from them, of course. They were down in that funny little box that they used to broadcast from. It was, was tiny. So that was 1973. And at uh, the end of that year, New Zealand came here. And um, I was broadcasting the New South Wales-New Zealand game. So I was lucky uh, to get on air doing cricket within six, seven months of um, getting the job in the ABC and... and I got a roll on from there, you could say, Tim. What a career, and it's been a rich 45 years. But I think of some of the, the games that were played here, the test matches played here, that stand out. The, yeah. that, that series, the English series in the 70s, the West Indies mm-hmm. series mm-hmm. in the 70s. And then more recently, you mentioned South Africa before in the rugby field, and finally the Vivians ripped through the Australian side, 1994, mm-hmm. month yeah. game. There's been some extraordinary test matches. Steve Ward's 100. Yes, well, um, it's funny when you think about it all. I, I, I can actually remember almost as clearly, if not more clearly, games where I was a schoolboy sitting down there with my ABC uh, magazine keeping the score when uh, in 62-3 
Alan Davidson and McKenzie went through England in the second innings, bowled them out for just over 100. And Brian Booth snicked the winning runs down to third man and it pelted with rain as they ran off the field and it never stopped raining. So they won that game by eight wickets. And four years later against uh, England, we got hammered by a bloke called Barber. who got 185, one of the best innings ever played on this ground. Uh, he was an extraordinary amateur who played for England. And um, he ended up making a lot of money out of a thing that uh, you probably have seen in yours or someone else's loo. You know that thing that makes the loo go blue when you flush? He was a, an industrial chemist, a very well-educated fella, and he had the patent on that. So uh, that was Bob Bar- Barber later. But at, at that point in his career, uh, I think that's the only 100 he ever made, and it was extraordinary. 185 and uh, that game they won by an inning. So I remember those. I remember Brian Lara getting 277. You mentioned Farney uh, de Villiers. Shane Warnes bowling any number of times on this ground, bowling massive leg breaks to get rid of fellas who didn't expect the ball to turn a yard. Um, yeah, there, are, there have been some extraordinary performances. Graham Smith coming out with his broken arm to try and stave off defeat and Mitchell Johnson knocking him over near the end of a test match. I mean, there, there are lots of things that just flash through your mind. Apart from uh, rugby league games and rugby union games, I saw the first Sunday game of rugby league back here in the 60s uh, when Keith Barnes beat St George, kicked five goals uh, to Dick Haddard's converted try under the posts, 10-5. Over 50,000 people here to see that. Uh, South Africa playing Australia in, in rugby, New Zealand in Australia, uh, of calling rugby league games, rugby league grand finals on this ground. So there's a, there's a lot to look back when you think of the history in this place. Uh, and it's not all about cricket, but, but most of it, most of it. Mm. He's very much a soundtrack of my life, catching a red rattler in and walking up the road street and going to the semis and the grand finals in the, in the late 70s and 80s. Jim, I've got a lot to thank you for. With 96 World Cup in, you're in Pakistan, and I was a young cub reporter, and you were there with the ABC, and you helped me through a lot. The, um, <laughs> your, your career has taken you all around the world, uh, and then you had this thunderstruck health moment. Tell, tell us about that, because that yeah. told you again, it sounded beautiful. And, Voices. Well, I'm lucky, Tim. Yes, I've got my, still got my voice. I, you know, that could have gone or whatever. I mean, it's it's a lottery when you have a stroke. So in my right hand side's a bit bit wobbly, but um, the voice survived it. But uh, the, the randomness of these things uh, gets you, uh, and you become uh, aware of your mortality when it does, because. And most of us, as we're bouncing along in life and being cheerful in the rest of it and getting on with it, just think um, we're indestructible. Um, and then something like that occurs. So I was lucky that I was here in Sydney during the Olympics, the Rio Olympics. We were doing most of the broadcasting, as was Channel 7, from Redfern. And uh, I was actually on air when I, I had, had the stroke early in, in the morning. Um, and uh, I'm grateful I was here and not in Rio. <laughs> uh, it could have been a lot worse. Anyway, um, you know, that was... Uh, I, 
eight weeks sort of out of my life sorting things out and um, luckily I was able to to get back on air and and, and do what I'm doing today so uh, it um, it was an, an extraordinary period because I'd also just finished writing this book so then I had to add another chapter uh, about having the stroke and uh, the people who were looking after me and and so on so I suppose it added a bit more richness to the story um, but I was very pleased to be able to get back here. I think this was August 2016, and in January I was back doing the, the test match. So uh, that was very gratifying. I was glad to have the streets of Sydney listening to you covering the ashes through the course of what was an extraordinary series. And is there that sense of extra appreciation of what you have, what you do, when you've been through something like that? I suppose so. I don't know. I don't think about a lot of these things as, as much as other people think I might, because um, you're busy just doing it and enjoying the moment. Uh, yeah, maybe when I reflect on it, uh, there's that that comes to it. But uh, a, a lot of a lot of broadcasting is about having a certain resilience, as you would know from 1996. Yeah, things can go wrong. You know, your world, yeah, to, to, to lose patience is to lose the battles of the story in India. And, you know, you just got to wear the punches sometimes. And I, I learned that, you know, a long time ago. And I don't think there's any doubt you need to have some disappointment in life uh, to make you a more mature person, better able to cope and deal and uh, have a touch of humanity about what you're doing as we are sitting here at the moment with bushfires raging down the road. I mean, and here we are playing cricket, really, with people losing their, their lives, their livelihoods, their houses. It's just too horrible to contemplate. And it was fascinating today when that firefighter was introduced to the crowd at the opening ceremony, the national anthem and everything, uh, John Corrie, I think his name was. And uh, that was like 10 curtain calls at the opera house. He got a huge round of applause, which shows how much the, the, the whole of, of this horrible experience, which is very much an Australian thing, um, uh, can get to us. Um, you know, ten years ago, Julie Gillard was up in our box talking about the flood relief for Brisbane. And, and so it goes. This is a, a land of extremes. And unfortunately, um, we have to deal with it. But um, it's still you know, sickening to think what has happened. But... Um, it, it gives you a great sense of being an Australian, I suppose, to see the way people respond and react and have a, a great spirit about them in, in wanting to support and give. So um, I hope that continues to be the case to the point where perhaps um, this should become the, the bushfire test match. Yeah. Yes, 
and that's what sport does for all of us, and, and that's why we, we need it uh, as, as, as part, part of our, our, our life. And we're lucky that in this country we're pretty successful at it. So people have got smiles on their faces most of the time. And um, that, that was one of the more extraordinary things about the whole Sandpaper Gate thing in South Africa. Um, as John Howard said to me at the time, what it does make you realise is how much Australians value uh, their cricket team and the values and the respect that they've gained. And when that becomes tarnished by some stupidity, naivety, as uh, we, we saw there, uh, it hurts. And it hurts a lot. So that's how much cricket in particular, I think, um, echoes the sense of... Uh, pride, nationalism, whatever there is about Australia. It is our national game. There's no doubt about it. And um, at the moment, it's, uh, it's a team that's riding pretty high because of the quality of, of their cricket and the way they are playing the game. I think it's been a great uh, relief to a lot of us that uh, Tim Payne, by accident as it were, has been able to galvanise the team and they're playing the type of cricket they are. Mm. And to watch the growth, the change, the remorse, that press conference of Steve Smith, which you virtually had to look away from, it was that confronting. Mm. But to watch the way that he was booed and kicked and geared at the start, the World Cup, the start of the yeah. to the end, where he was almost to a person at the ground, on their feet, applauding him, he sort of bashed the ball for submission to me over there. It was an extraordinary performance. It was a virtuoso performance, and uh, at his best, he's a scoring phenomenon, the like of which um, we probably haven't seen since Bradman in that regard. Um, yes, there'll be times when he comes back to the field, but it's been a, a great re personal recovery for him uh, and for all of us, I think, to see that uh, he's been able to restore himself and fulfil his potential and... Uh, it was quite breathtaking in England to see that. And that's how he diffused uh, the crowd, the acrimony that was around from those that were booing, as you say. Um, but um, he won them over by the end of it. And it was, it was just fantastic to watch it unfold. It is the best job in the world, isn't it? Here we are just sitting in a room with a couple of microphones. But broadcasting, in any capacity, I feel very privileged to... Mm -hmm. When people ask, they say, what's it like? It's better than working for a living. How do you, as we wrap it up, how do you reflect on a life in broadcast? Well, we all have to remember that uh, as a broadcaster, you know, it's a, it's a privilege that you shouldn't take for granted because not everyone gets the chance to do this. And uh, I've mean, I worked on radio and, and, and television. Uh, radio is a more sustaining medium, I think, because you have full control over what's going on, whereas in television... You're a, 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 a bit um, connected to the pictures, the gimmickry and, and all the other stuff that's flung up on the screen, but radio, total control, and you develop a relationship and intimacy with the audience, which is special, to the point where you can create illusions. You don't always have to be accurate, um, and that's another spellbinding re reason for radio to be where it is and uh, I, I continue to be more sustained actually by listening to my radio than watching the TV particularly at night because there's, there's so much good stuff to listen to and 
you tend to concentrate a bit more unless it's an, an extraordinary bit of sport you're watching or something like that. So, yes, we're all very fortunate to have been given the opportunity to talk to people like you and I are talking now, Tim, across the way, over the bar, and just tell them a story. I mean, the podcast has that same magic. Yeah. The podcast has that same way of magic, doesn't it? It does. Media. Yeah. You do one. You do one every week, or twice a week. Is it? Uh, no, once a week on the BBC, we do this program called Stumped, which is getting quite a bit of uh, coverage through the BBC, ABC, and All India Radio. So uh, yes, it's it's becoming a very popular form of communication, and uh, I've now got my wife in the car playing all these podcasts about um, uh, various incidents that have occurred in our lives. Not always related to sport, but fascinating to listen to. So long may the, the spoken word be heard. Now we need Mrs. Maxwell She'll be listening, Tim, don't worry. Absolutely. She'll be listening. And she'll enjoy it as well. Jimmy, I don't want to uh, muck around with the roster of the ABC. Thanks for having the chat. Pleasure. Lovely to talk to you.